iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Before we get to today's show, one very exciting announcement. The pivot is here. So I gave you a heads up a few weeks ago that we're working on a new podcast, which is a series of mini documentaries about Silicon Valley. Well, the feed is up, so please go over there right now and subscribe. It's called The Pivot, two words, and the thumbnail is a picture of me looking like the Terminator, so you can't miss it. I'll also put the link at the top of my Twitter feed, which is at Danny Fortson. So uh, the first episode drops next week, and we'll also be putting the episodes into this feed. So anyhow, I hope you guys enjoy it. We put a lot of work into it, and it's really fun. So please stop right now, sign up for The Pivot, tell a friend, and hope you guys enjoy it. Now, on to today's show. Yo, technology, what is it all about? This week on Danny in the Valley, we have Scott Cooper, who's the managing partner at Andreessen Horowitz, the $10 billion venture capital giant. Behind companies like Airbnb, Lyft, Lime, Slack, all kinds of unicorns and other interesting companies. Cooper has been there since day one, so he has a lot of great insights and stories. And he's just written a book called Secrets of Sand Hill Road, which pulls back the curtain on the world of Silicon Valley venture capital. We cover a lot of ground, and I think you'll really dig it. So I'm going to stop talking. And without further ado, I give you Scott Cooper. So I thought an interesting place to start would be going back to the boom, because I was actually living, before I went to Spain, before I went to the UK, I was here in San Francisco, kind of covering the boom and mostly the bust. Yeah. When did you start covering? In 2000. Your timing was almost impeccable. Yeah. And I worked at a company called Sparks.com, lasted four months. (laughs) They were um, funded by Benchmark. Didn't last. Yeah. At the time, it was craziness here. And I think in your book, you say something about, I think it's 900 VC-backed companies went yeah. public. Yeah, it was some crazy number. Yeah, so but so for for the two years, 1999 and 2000, somewhere between like 750 to 900, basically, companies went public in that time period. The amazing thing is, so the median revenue of those companies was about $17 million, right? So if you just think really? about that, right? Yeah, so at the time they were going public, basically, these were tiny, tiny companies. Of course, we all know how that turned out in the end. If you actually, it's funny, if you fast forward to today, in the 10-year, the last 10-year period, right? So basically, kind of post-financial crisis, we've done total of something like 400 tech IPOs over that decade, right? Compared to basically 750 to 900 in one two-year period. And actually, the median revenue now is about 170 million. So it's literally 10x what it was kind of back then. Well, so that was going to be my question. That's why I wanted to start there is kind of the comparison of then and now, because a lot of people are like, well, you know. 
there's all these unicorns yeah. and they're all losing money and isn't this just a rerun of what was happening then? Yeah, uh, I will be the first to acknowledge it's always dangerous to say this time is different. Uh, but let me let me at least <laughs> it's make, always different. Let me, let me at least make the pro case for why I think it's different. So one is just you know the numbers we talked about, right? So the sheer magnitude of what happened in nine nine two thousand compared to where we are today is just different. I mean, this will be probably a good IPO year, but um, you know we'll probably do fifty tech IPOs or something. I think the biggest difference, though, is it goes back to kind of whether the companies could have actually been successful in 99-2000. So I'll give you a story that Mark Andreessen always reminds me of. So when they sold Netscape to AOL in 1998, the total size of the internet population was about 100 million users globally, basically, right? So that meant literally if Netscape got 100% market share, they could sell to 100 million people. If you think about that and then you say, okay, look, let's use Pets.com, right, as a great example, since we've got you know, kind of the modern-day incarnation of Pets.com is Chewy.com, which mm-hmm. just went public, you know, in a very celebrated way. No matter how good Pets.com was, there just weren't that many people who could use the service, right? There was, a, at that time, there were literally 100 million people, and so, you know, and you're probably not going to get 100% market share. So it cost a lot of money to get to those people because you didn't have iPhones, you didn't have, you know, you know quite frankly, you didn't have much of Google, and you certainly didn't have Facebook. And then once you got to them, there just weren't that many of them. And so no matter how great of a product it was, it just never could get to a big market, right? Whereas if you fast forward to today, I think the biggest difference is the market size is just bigger, right? So we've got four, four and a half billion people with, you know, a basically smartphone smartphones. Or, yeah. And, you know, that'll probably grow to five and a half, six billion once we get to full developing world, you know, coverage. And you have things like Google and Facebook and others, which, you know, for all of the challenges that obviously people, you know, talk about today, and we can certainly spend some time there, you know, they are incredible distribution channels to help these companies, these young companies actually get access to customers, at least to begin to bootstrap their customer acquisition. And so you can get a Chewy.com that works today when Pets.com didn't work. You can get an Instacart that works today when Webvan, which again, you know, people may remember, right? You know, I mean, Webvan incinerated, you know. Didn't they raise something? I mean, at the time, which is crazy, it was like hundreds of millions. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was even for the times it was crazy, right? I mean, now again, you know, now we kind of scoff at a hundred million dollars, right? Because, you know, you know, that's a dime a dozen these days. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, so it's those things I think that make a difference and it goes to, you know, I talk about this in the book a lot, but this issue of there's really nothing new under the sun, which is a lot of the ideas that we see that are working today are things that quite frankly, people knew about it's you know we were in this business loud cloud which you know which we which i mentioned which was basically we were trying to build amazon web services and we were doing it in 1999 2000 it was the cloud before the cloud exactly right yeah uh we were you know we were just too early but you know the amazon web services is to loud cloud the same way that you know instacart is to webvan like sometimes with the passage of time and technology costs coming down and market sizes going up and distribution models getting better so that's the bull case for why this time is different is it easier to have kind of better timing now simply because the market is so much bigger? Because there is so much, we're talking many billions of people as opposed to 100 million. So yeah. if you even have a decent idea, you have a better chance of making some success of it. Yeah, I think that's right, which is, look, you have a chance to have a kind of velocity of like pickup in the business that you just couldn't have had before because of, again, ubiquity of cell phones and technologies are less or expensive, you know, the world is flatter in terms of just, you know, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of cross geography and cross pollination happening. So I think that's right. There will always be some companies that are still too early. So, you know, kind of, we've been an investor uh, in kind of the VR space, for example, for a little while, and we were, uh, you know, lucky enough to be able to invest in Oculus that got bought yeah. by Facebook. And, uh, you know, it's, it's done well, but I would say like, our forecasts for how long it would take for VR to really become mainstream were probably are probably off. It's probably taking longer than kind of we would have anticipated, and yeah. so it's possible that 
you know, kind of some first generation companies in any given technology area, kind of no matter how great they are, might just suffer from being a little bit too early for entering the market. Kind of related to that question is, do entrepreneurs, startup people need you guys less now? Because you have Amazon Web Services and you can, if a good idea can be instantly global. There's a yes and a no to that answer. So you're absolutely right, which is it's cheaper than ever to start a company, right? So, and, you know, we know that because of things like Amazon Web Services and the cost of all the inputs have come down. And so that's certainly true. And so for half a million, a million dollars, you can certainly get something off the ground. The challenge, I think, though, is it's also the case that it's probably more expensive than ever to scale a company. So you've got this weird kind of barbell happening, which is, it's relatively easy to kind of try something, not yeah. easy, it's, it's, it's hard to do, but at least easy from a capital perspective, right, to try something and see if it works. But, you know, if you want to go be Airbnb or Instacart or, you know, we're an investor in Lime, like, you, what used to happen in the old world was you used to be able to kind of, if you were a U.S. company, you'd go win the U.S. market and then you'd kind of, you know, in serial succession, go to different markets, right? You'd go to English-speaking European countries, right? And then you'd go to Japan and Korea and stuff. That used to happen probably over a five, seven year period. Today, right, all these businesses kind of have to prosecute multiple geographies at the same time because the world is so much flatter from a competitiveness perspective. And so you do, this is why you see these companies that, you know, they may only cost a couple million dollars to get off the ground, but then they raise these hundred million dollar rounds. So I think the short answer is the need for capital for successful businesses is still great. I think, you know, there's the maybe deeper question to your question, which is, do you need to get that capital from VCs or not? And I think that is the big, you know, that is a big question, you know, that this industry has to has to face, which is if all we are is a capital source, we're not that attractive, right? There's plenty, there's always gonna be someone who's got more money at a lower cost of capital than do we. And so we believe, look, you have to offer something other than money, you've got to offer some value add that entrepreneurs believe actually will help them achieve their business objectives. And that's our view, at least as to how the industry's really changed over the last 10 years, relative to kind of, you know, where, where things were in the past, where capital was scarce, the VCs had the money and therefore, you know, kind of that was a sufficient differentiation in the marketplace. Have you heard this term that someone mentioned to me the other day, the mullet, which refers to, <laughs> you can tell me whether you've seen any of this or not, but he was, uh, I was talking to a, a guy and he was saying that more companies are just either not basing themselves here at all or just having a CEO here. And then the rest of their operations somewhere that isn't just ridiculously expensive. Right, right. And so it's, you know, the mullet, the professional up front, party in the back <laughs> type of thing. But just because it's, and it's kind of along the lines of, which I'm sure you've seen, there's this an endless stream of stories about kind of everything going wrong here in yeah. terms of just yeah. Yeah. the cost of living, what's happening to cities here and homelessness and everything else. Yeah. I don't know if you're actually seeing that yeah. in terms of the companies you see and how they set themselves up and where they're based. Look, I agree with your point, which is what's happened is, look, we've been a huge beneficiary here of the fact that these companies have done well. And therefore, for people who are in the companies, at least, notwithstanding the fact that uh, it's very expensive to live here, companies have generally been able to increase wages, right? So you look, you know, we know if we look across the U.S., wage increases have been very, very stagnant. I mean, here, I think at least my sense is that, you know, for the most part, companies have been able to increase wages to kind of keep pace with with competition. But I do think there's a, I think there is a longer existential question about, you know, can Silicon Valley continue to be the center of innovation? Probably maybe not in our professional lifetime, but over a 30, 50, you know, plus year period, Mm -hmm. if we don't solve some of these things like income equality and housing and public transportation and, you know, taxes and all this other stuff. And, you know, I don't know whether we will solve those problems, but at least I think for today, 
I think today, at least, particularly in an economic boom cycle, they're manageable, at least for the people in those industries. They're not manageable, obviously, for people who are kind of not able to take advantage of the higher wages yeah. in those systems. But uh, but I think it's a, real, it's a real issue that at some point in time we're going to actually have to address or it's going to happen. And is that an issue that is kind of front of mind at a place like this, for example, the changing social dynamics here? Yeah, it's certainly something we talk about. I would say, look, it's not... Um, uh, it's not something that, you know, kind of I think we spend a lot of time day to day in our core business thinking about. But I, I think it is. I think there are I think there are more of a generation of the new business leaders in some of these companies for whom, you know, whether you call it ESG or whatever you want to call it, like some concept of like actually doing social good coincident with doing economic good. I think it does matter. And so, you know, people like some people are doing these kind of, you know, uh, pledges, right, where they're pledging kind of, uh, you know, the thing that uh, Mark Benioff started at Salesforce, this one, one, one thing, right? Yeah. Where you pledge 1% of stock or time or or income. There is more of a kind of awareness in the community, uh, but it's it's still probably being done by primarily individuals who are highly motivated to do it as opposed to kind of the writ large, the community. Why'd you write the book? I've been doing tech for about 25 years now and, and 10 in this business. And uh, I had thought that everybody's questions had been answered. Uh, and yet I kept finding that entrepreneurs would come to me and ask me some very foundational questions about how does the business work and should I raise capital? And they all had this undertone of feeling like, gee, it feels to me like the playing field is not level, that the VCs know something that I don't know, that they speak this special vocabulary or language that I don't know. And so, uh, you know, I just felt like, look, it was time to try to, you know, for, you know, level that playing field and say, look, if we can explain the business, and we ought to win on the own or on our own merits of look. Either we are attractive to an entrepreneur because we offer something, as opposed to we win a deal because we know we know some secret vocabulary that they don't know. So that was really what I was hoping to accomplish with it. To demystify the process. That's basically. exactly right. Yeah, and my hope is, look, if you demystify it, hopefully that means there is more trust in the relationship between venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. That we don't have this kind of you know unspoken lack of trust as a result of information asymmetry. And then, you know, a little bit to what we talked about earlier about kind of broader inclusion is, look, if we can, particularly for people who don't live in New York, California, or Massachusetts, right, if we can actually help them understand the business, hopefully it becomes more approachable to them, and therefore maybe it encourages more entrepreneurship generally. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Can you talk about the effect that Y Combinator had on this whole yeah. world and what changed that? 
yeah. brought. Really, really big effect. And I, I mentioned this a little bit in the book. I'd say the two big changes, right, that happened over the last 10 years are kind of institutionalization of seed capital, right? So as I mentioned, these hundreds of new seed firms that didn't exist. Because previously that would have been... High net worths. Exactly right. So it would have been, you know, a Ron Conway who's, you know, a very famous and, you know, well-known angel who's literally, you know, he now has a fund called SV Angel, but for a long time he was writing checks out of his own checkbook. Yeah, he was just the guy. He was the guy, right? And Mark and Ben, uh, you know, were doing this before we started the firm here. They, you know, they had, you know, accumulated some wealth as a result result of their entrepreneurial activities and could write $25,000, $50,000, $100,000 checks. And then what happened was... You know, you had this whole just, you know, kind of, as I said, really institutionalization of seed capital. And I think the way, the reason it was so profound is it changed the competitive dynamics for the industry, right? Because before those folks existed, there were a couple angels that all the VCs knew. And, and so that was where the funnel was. That was kind of where the funnel was, everything. right? Exactly. Right. And they were small enough where, again, you know, they were putting, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars and it wasn't that meaningful. So the VCs were really the first real institutional capital going into companies. Now you've got, you know, literally, I think in the Bay Area, at least several hundred of these firms that basically are upstream of all the VCs. And that just changes the competitive dynamic because now, you know, it really changes how you think about the funnel of deals and the flow of deals. So anyways, that's that's kind of thing number one. And then, you know, you would ask about Y Combinator. I think Y Combinator was thing number two that really also changed the business. It started in 05. I think the most foundational thing that Y Combinator did was it really started the process that, you know, again, I hope my book is, is you know, maybe a part of that continuity of really educating a whole generation of entrepreneurs about kind of the startup and a company building process in a way that I think democratized, started to democratize access to information, made entrepreneurship kind of more tangible to people, and therefore, quite frankly, probably brought more people into the entrepreneurship circle than would have otherwise existed. You know, that network of all the Y Combinator graduates also then started to apply competitive pressure to the VC industry, right? Because now you could talk to 50 other people who had raised capital before you and say, hey, did you like this firm or that firm or what you got out of this one or not? And that kind of just fluidity of information flow, I think, also really changed the competitive dynamic. So I, I think it's hard to understate the kind of impact that Y Combinator's had on the business. Well, that was one, I was talking to somebody last week, and they mentioned that Y Combinator, Combinator actually has like a kind of a a kind of live profile of individual investors right. at firms, yeah. which yeah. which their entrepreneurs can see when yeah. they're going out to look for money, which I just thought was really interesting. It's almost like a dating website. <laughs> exactly, a dating website, or uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a, a another analogy, but that's probably a good one. Yeah, yeah, I've never seen it, but I believe it to be true because yes, I've heard it from many people, and you're right, right? I mean, think about that, right? So in the pre Y Combinator stage, basically, money was scarce. The VCs had it, and information was very scarce. So no one really knew, right? You kind of, you might have known a buddy of yours who had raised money from some firm, but you didn't have 50 people who you literally kind of were in an incubator class with for, you know, three months at a time, who you knew intimately, who you could say, hey, person X versus person Y versus person Z, like what's your experience been? And so, yeah, like that level of kind of just information broadcast or whatever you want to say, or, you know, kind of information availability just dramatically changes. And it's, look, I think it's a good thing in the sense that it's forced the VCs to up their game, right? It's forced us to recognize that, Money is just money, and my money doesn't look any different than any other person on this road here who has money. And so the question ultimately is, do I do I add any value or not to this entrepreneur? Like, that's how ultimately we all have to win. And if, look, if we don't do that, then someone else with more money and lower cost of that money will always, will always win this game. So when Y Combinator kind of came on the scene or, you know, this idea of the kind of the investor profiles or people kind of like, mm, I don't like this. I mean, were people kind of uncomfortable or like, you know, kind of screw them? Or was it kind of like, all right, well, this is a new reality. What is it kind of the four stages of anger or something, right? I I think you go through these different (laughs) stages, right? Which is at first, 
when you're new, it's like, oh, it's kind of a cute little baby, right? And everybody wants to pat it on its head. And, you know, over time, obviously, you know, they go through their adolescent phase and all of a sudden they you know, develop pimples and all that great stuff. And, and then I think, and so I think, I think that's kind of the nature of how people view competition is it's, you know, Y Combinator didn't come in, you know, day one and say, by the way, we're going to create profiles of everybody. And yeah. if you don't treat our companies well, we're going to make sure, you know, you never get to raise money from our, you know, our companies never yeah, go yeah. talk to you. Uh, so I don't think I don't think people I think people probably didn't appreciate kind of the expansiveness that you know Paul had when he first started it, uh, and so I think you know there was a big embracing of Y Combinator, and, it, and people still embrace Y Combinator because it's incredibly important. But but look, Y Combinator over time has added funds, right? They now have this continuity yeah. fund, right? Uh, they're doing more even traditional A rounds and stuff like that, and so I think look as with anything in any market, uh, you always have to be on your toes and just recognize that you know kind of you've got a little bit of a frenemy situation here, which is, you know, sometimes, you know, any of these firms on this road or Y Combinator, we will co-invest with them. And other times, quite frankly, we will directly compete against them. And that's what makes a market, I think. Well, that's what's really interesting about, especially the venture capital world, is that you're kind of all frenemies. How does that work? And how do you, how do you... <laughs> it is kind of weird when you think about it, actually. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, you're competitors and partners <laughs> right, at, right, right. at the same time. That has the potential to be toxic for the investors. Yeah, yeah. I think it's mostly net positive. And again, I'm speaking as a VC, so you know it'd yeah. be great to get an entrepreneur's <laughs> view. Um, and the reason I say it's net positive is that I think it at least enforces a set of rules because we all recognize that we are repeat players and that the, the tide could be, you know, the shoe could be on the other foot on any given day, which is, you know, I could be trying to get into the B round of a company that one of my competitors funded just as today, maybe they're trying to get into the B round of something I funded. And so if I'm a stickler on legal terms or if I don't cooperate and I don't like help, you know, do what's in the best interest of the company that, you know, some somebody can kind of, you know, put that stick in my face the next day as well. So I think in that respect, it's helpful. I think also, quite frankly, from an entrepreneur's perspective, if they play it right, then they're able to get kind of the best of both worlds, which is now I get multiple people sitting around the table. I can tap into resources and value and intellect from lots of different firms that hopefully will be valuable in building my business. Um, and I'm sure, look, there are, I think there are some cases certainly where maybe it creates tension and creates issues inside the company. But I think for entrepreneurs who manage their boards appropriately and therefore can kind of, you know, actually use it to their advantage of getting kind of maximum advantage and opportunity out of each of those respective board members, I think it's probably a good thing. And what goes wrong? What is it when you have a, you know, this relationship between venture capitalists and And entrepreneurs? Yeah. Yeah. What are the kind of, oh God, this is going to happen again, or the kind of the things that most often kind of set things askew? Yeah, I, I think... Look, there's lots of unfortunate times where things can go wrong. I think a lot of them all come back to, are you aligned around what you're trying to accomplish and the incentives that you're marching to, right? And and it's, again, something that I, I try to point out a little bit in the book is yeah. understanding incentive structures. And so, you know, look, I think where, where things go right is where we both go into the opportunity and we say, great, like our goal is the same, which is we want to both work hard to hopefully facilitate building a fantastically great company uh, that, you know, can go on hopefully to be a Facebook or a Google or something of that scale. And but does that that starting point is that the scale of ambition is that the kind of okay we want to be yeah or, I mean how specific do you have to get yeah or, I I think you have to I think as an entrepreneur you have to you have to know what you're getting into right you have to know that look the way the VC business works for better or worse and this is not a normative statement is you know we are looking for things that can ultimately become you know effectively standalone public companies that yeah. have you know tremendous you know market cap potential. And there's nothing normally wrong. If you don't want to build that business, that's totally fine. And there are other sources of capital, and that makes sense. But I think, you know, where things go wrong is at the outset is either if 
the VC is trying to convince the entrepreneur to build something different than they are, or the entrepreneur isn't being straightforward with the VC about what their ambitions are, you can certainly get off on the wrong foot. Um, you know, again, I think where hopefully things go right is we are our incentives are aligned, and I think most importantly, we each recognize what our role is. And and again, I talk about this in the book, but like I think the other big failure case is really mostly a VC failure case, which is we overstep our bounds on the board and try to inject ourselves into the business in a way that just doesn't make sense, and quite frankly, that we don't have the context to be able to make sense for. So, you know, I was in a company for you know nine years. Um, there's no way that you coming to a board meeting once a quarter have any idea what's actually happening in the company. Not because I'm trying to obfuscate the truth from you, but you just you're just not there every day, yeah. right? You have no idea what my engineering lead is capable of or what my customer service rep knows what they're doing. And so, you know, for me to sit there as a board member and tell you as the entrepreneur, like, this product strategy makes sense and this one doesn't, or, you know, you this launch schedule makes more sense. I mean, those are the times I think where things can get sideways. You not only interfere with the relationship, but particularly if you're in a board meeting where you have direct reports of the CEO also sitting in that board meeting, obviously they hear a board member effectively disagreeing in front of them with their CEO. That's like, you know, that certainly can undermine the chain of command and yeah. how these businesses get run. And so I think that's where a lot of the problems start to happen is in those situations where either, you know, the VCs aren't acting as they should in the board or the entrepreneur isn't doing their best to kind of manage the board, keep the keep the VCs informed as what's happening and or deferring too much decision making in some respects to the board. Yeah, because also, I mean, it sounds like ultimately it's a question of ego and trust. If I'm a venture capitalist and I've done this a hundred times yeah. and you're an entrepreneur and you're on your first company, I think I know better than you. <laughs> Some people might think that, right? Yes, exactly, right. <laughs> and yeah. so I imagine uh, there's a certain amount of kind of you have to let go of the rope a little bit and just be like... Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, you you do. I mean, you really do have to let go of the rope, right? I mean, you know, look, the the first thing to learn in this seat, the VC seat, is you are not an operator anymore, right? You, you know, a lot of us came from that world and... If you want to be an operator, go be an operator. Don't be a VC if you want to actually try and remote control operate like a company. I mean, it's just a you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. So I think you're right. It is a question of trust, but look, it's also for from our perspective, what we invested in was that individual, right? And so for us to kind of do things that compromise their, you know, ability to drive the company and the strategy and everything else, you know, doesn't make any sense. Look, the ultimate thing, of course, that a board can do, as you know, is look, a board can hire or fire a CEO. And so if at some point in time you just fundamentally don't trust the CEO to do their job. I think the right and the professional thing to do is to have a discussion about, okay, like, do we think the CEO should be in the job, but not to try to kind of, you know, inject yourself or, you know, subtly undermine them in ways that kind of, yeah. you know, doesn't allow them to actually execute their own business. Just thinking about your job as a venture capitalist, I mean, it's as much as a kind of a hits business, it's more often a failure business. Absolutely. <laughs> it is yeah and so, so to kind of try to walk that line yeah i, ma- I mean i imagine it, there's a lot of bitterness that you have to deal with <laughs> or that kind of things end badly because when the things end they usually end badly yeah look it's no fun and so just to give you your give you a sense right the numbers you're right which is look about half of what we do is going to be you know what we call impaired which is a very polite way to say like impaired impaired yes impaired capital is a <laughs> if you if you need a euphemism for you've yeah. lost all your money you can use impaired uh, yeah but yeah, so about half of what we do is probably there. And then, you know, 20 to 30%, you make a little bit of money, right? And then, you know, you're you're right. You hope kind of 10, maybe 20% if you're lucky of your companies basically drive 90% of your returns in the business. Yeah. And so, yeah, look, it's no fun when you end up, when companies end up in that first 50% category. Um, look, that's where I think you earn your reputation as a VC, which is, you know, you, you make your money on the stuff that wins, which you, you know, you make your reputation on the stuff that doesn't work because you've got to like figure out a way to help that CEO find homes for employees or wind down the business in a thoughtful way because 
this is a reference this is a reference-based business, right? And so if you sit here and you just say, hey, look, I'm just going to write off all that 50% of my companies and not talk to them and not engage with them, you know, that might be a very short-term rational thing for you to do from a pure, you know, raw economic perspective, but it's a horrible long-term way to preserve your reputation in this business. And so in that respect, I think, you know, my sense is most people do the right thing and, uh, you know, make sure that they apportion their time appropriately, even for those companies that, you know, aren't ultimately going to drive a lot of returns. Right. Well, because also it's, you could... It could be self-defeating because some somebody like you know like Slack, for example, is right, a, right. You get these fail, awesome. You have right, a yeah. couple kind of it didn't quite work. It didn't quite work. Then oh my god, all of a sudden it really works. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, yeah, look, I mean Slack, of course, is you know it's the pivot of all pivots, right? I mean you you know there aren't many times that you have a gaming company that becomes a now what you know twenty billion dollar plus enterprise software public company. Part of the building process is also kind of part of you know people pivoting and making changes and. I think the honest answer is you don't know, right? It's really hard to know if these companies, I mean, you know, at the end of the day where literally if you've got a month's worth of cash and there's nothing left, you're probably not going to make it. But, you know, you just don't know in these companies where you're a year or two in and maybe they're still floundering to figure out the market. A lot of these things, it just takes time. And if they're careful about preserving cash and maintaining their options, a lot of things that you thought would not work may ultimately work if given the benefit of time. And so I think you're right. If you if you write these things too off too early, you not only damage your relationship, but I think even practically from an economic perspective, you might find that a lot of these businesses actually could and, and will survive, notwithstanding kind of early stumbles. And thinking about the temperature, yeah. political temperature at the moment, yeah, it's very anti-big tech Silicon Valley. Yeah, Sitting where you are, not uh, quite apart from like Andreessen's history with Facebook, sure, sure, if sure. you can separate that out, yeah. would that be a good thing to break up the kind of a f- Google... Facebook. I mean, it's the big four. I mean, they seem to be a group together. They're all quite different businesses, uh, at least uh, Apple and Amazon are. If you're in the business of kind of funding the next generation of world beaters, presumably that would be easier to do if there aren't these, you know, huge companies that are buying companies up or crushing them. Yeah, so uh, that's a big topic. So let me give, let me give you a couple <laughs> let me give you a couple of thoughts on that. So you're absolutely right. Which is, look, the political temperature is high right now, and uh, you know I think maybe the only the only thing that rivals kind of the excitement around tech today is probably the anti-China excitement that we also have in this country. And so those are probably the two most bipartisan issues it seems to be at least mm-hmm. in DC these days. Look, I think there's no question that there's a broader issue of, okay, is there such thing as too big, right? So, you know, traditionally, right, if you look at the antitrust laws, they all deal with this concept of consumer harm, right? And so I think, you know, there is there are good laws in the books to deal with bad behavior. So, you know, Google, for example, you know, did a settlement with the EU a while ago because they were, you know, forcing people who wanted to kind of take the Google uh, browser to just use Android to also bundle the Google browser, right? Yeah, it's like Microsoft bundling. Right, it's Microsoft like Microsoft bundling, Inter- yeah, Inter- you know, Explorer. Internet Explorer, right? Yeah. And so behavior like that, like clearly, like we should correct. I don't think there's any, I don't think people have too much issue with that. I think this, there's this broader question, though, which is, okay, like just because they are big, does that inherently mean there is consumer harm? And, you know, you raise the question on the VC side. It is true that, yes, maybe if Facebook were broken up, then you could go fund the next Facebook, right? Um but the reality is there's also other things that Facebook and Google in particular, you know, do that are helpful to the ecosystem, right? So we talked about this earlier, which is this idea of relatively kind of efficient customer acquisition channels to at least start the business, right? So to yeah. be able to buy Facebook ads and Google ads and things of that sort and AdWords and stuff, those are helpful kind of bootstraps that just never existed 10 years ago, right? Otherwise, you had to go build up your own distribution channels. And so I think that's the the challenge, I think, for regulators is to figure out, okay, like, is there something inherently bad about being big? 
coupled with, okay, do I think there are good things that, you know, actually facilitate startup development? Look, the reality is, notwithstanding the bigness of these companies, we're at all-time highs in terms of venture capital dollars being raised, venture capital dollars being invested, startup company formation. And so it's not as if it's had any chilling effect on the venture industry's ability to find new winners. But I do think, um, more generally, um, there's a broader topic, I think, that, that this raises, which is, we are all lucky enough to live in the Bay Area here where mostly we see, you know, not always, but mostly we see the benefits of technology because, you know, we often are experimental with things like Lime and other stuff that yeah. start here. I think what this does raise, which is an important issue, is we have to recognize that kind of the benefits of technology are not evenly distributed in all cases. We already see it from an income inequality perspective, but particularly in geographies outside of the Bay Area, that not everybody perceives all this stuff as good. And I do think we have a responsibility given how big tech has become and how just important it is to day-to-day economic growth and economic you know, job development for the country that I think all of those companies and probably the tech industry more generally has to like have a better dialogue with DC around what is our responsibility to make sure whether it's things like privacy or other stuff that we are hopefully doing things that are positive from a community and you know broader social perspective in addition to doing things that we think are positive from a product development perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because that, that concept of consumer harm, I mean, it's hard to argue that there's consumer harm when the product is free, but it does feel like antitrust laws were written for a time when we're talking about, you know, barrels of oil and miles of railroad track. That's exactly right. Yeah. And these are kind of, you know, digital things that can be distributed globally with, with a swipe. Yeah. So it does feel like there is a, there is some kind of reckoning coming at least in terms of writing new laws that recognize that the world has changed. You're right. The antitrust laws definitely were intended to say, look, like there was a concept of big is bad, right? So the whole concept of, gee, railroads and, you know, other things like that was, look, if somebody actually has a monopoly, they will ultimately drive prices up. And you're right. This idea of things being free kind of turns that model on its head. But the other interesting piece, though, which which I, I you know kind of relearned, which I had forgotten, was this whole concept of consumer welfare is a relatively new consumer harm. Excuse me, is a relatively new concept. It really started kind of in the early '80s with the Reagan administration. Mm. It's really kind of defined a lot of you know kind of antitrust jurisprudence for the last 30 years. But if you kind of rewind to kind of the original antitrust purpose there was kind of this element of big is bad, almost independent of whether there is currently monopolistic behavior that causes consumer harm. And so it'll be an interesting, it's, there's definitely this interesting academic debate going on in addition to a broader political debate as to should we return to a, an antitrust era that, you know, kind of was defined by something other than, you know, pure consumer harm. Because I think you're right, the, the digital nature of this stuff and the kind of free nature of it doesn't quite fit in with the current paradigm. Yeah. Do you guys have a thesis or are you seeing opportunities around this kind of area of privacy because it does feel like privacy or anti-surveillance yeah all that stuff the kind of anti-facebook slash google yeah approach to the internet yeah which is you know what we talked about before which is very hot in washington yeah. and, and in the eu and elsewhere are you seeing companies that are trying to come up with you know the next big company that is effectively the anti-facebook the anti-google yeah. the kind of a different way to approach the internet and how people move around online so I would say the closest thing we've seen to that is how we think about crypto. So again, the way we think about crypto is, can you build a set of effectively infrastructure components that are governed by a decentralized community as opposed to governed by a centralized community? So you know, the classic example would be, gee, if I'm Google, there's a certain terms of, of use and terms of service that I impose upon you if you're a user or if you're an advertiser. And you know, I as Google, rightly so, because I own the company, I yep. can change those if I want. And the kind of anti-Google in that case, or you know, the anti-Facebook on the crypto world would be, hey, 
you don't let a centralized organizer control the rules. You have it decentralized among a broad governance community so that no individual person could dramatically upset the apple cart for any individual user. That's probably the closest thing we're seeing. So you could imagine a world in which if crypto worked, there might be a, a Facebook-like application. I'm just making this up, but maybe there's, you know, kind of crypto Facebook, you know, 10 years from now yeah. or something, right? That could operate on a decentralized network where you might actually own your personal identity and you might decide, hey, you know, I want to make my identity available to these brands to advertise to me. And oh, by the way, I would actually get some compensation for yeah, that. Yeah, here's my, it's kind of like an annuity type income. Exactly right, yeah. yeah, right. Instead of kind of obviously a centralized organization like Facebook effectively capturing the value of that advertising. So- you can imagine that. I mean, I, I will acknowledge, look, we are in very, very early days of that industry, but that's probably the closest thing that at least I think people in the engineering community have thought about as kind of the, the anti-Google, anti-Facebook. I would think of it more as anti-centralization of control yeah. in a more decentralized environment. With the companies that you invest in, how often does it, I'm just just thinking based on what you just said, does it often happen that they come back to me like, hey, man, why are you investing in this company that's trying to destroy us when you helped build us up 10 years ago? Because I mean, I mean, that yeah. is what happens here. Yeah. Kind of that is what makes this place go. But I don't know if you guys are kind of too young. You're only 10, 10 years old. It hasn't, you're not quite in that cycle yet, but there will be a new generation of yeah. companies that are trying to destroy some of the companies you help build. Yeah, I think there will be. Look, and you probably to, want to yeah. invest in them. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it goes to fundamentally this question of, of conflicts, right? So there's in this business, look, you can't really invest in a direct conflict. So we're Lyft investors. Look, you know, you couldn't invest in Lyft and Uber, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, no matter what you think about either company, they are pretty direct substitutes for one another, right? You know, if you came here by one of those vehicles, like you deliberately, you know, you picked one and you did not pick the other, therefore it's pure zero sum game, right? So look, that business is clear and we can't do that because yeah. reputation doesn't make sense. But you're right. I think it'd be very hard to legislate to say, okay, if you once invested in, you know, Cisco, you could never now invest in any networking company over yep. time because that's just I think this business. So I mean, you know, hopefully these things happen in generational turns where probably, you know, kind of by the time those things happen, you've already those other companies have gone public and maybe you're no longer even a shareholder, so you technically don't even have an economic conflict. Yeah. Uh but uh but yeah, no, no one's ever told us that. You know, Facebook has never said don't, you know, don't invest in crypto or other things that could be yeah. our demise. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and I, I just don't think, I, I don't think that would ever work. Uh, and uh, certainly, you know, the antitrust officials in Washington obviously wouldn't, wouldn't be happy if they heard that either. So if you had one piece of advice to an entrepreneur who was trying to get in here and raise some money, yeah. or what's, you know, is there a most common mistake that is made or one thing that they should absolutely do that most people don't? In terms of physically, like actually getting here, or once they get here? <laughs> no, not like use Waze rather than yes. Google Maps, but um, the yeah, actual, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in terms of actually getting in the front door, I mean, look, as with all things in life, I mean, you know, this is unfortunate reality, but finding somebody who can help you get into that front door is way more effective than trying to like knock down the door yourself, right? And that's not to say that, look, if you've exhausted all your means and your only way to get here is to send somebody a cold email, clearly you should go do it. But, you know, the reality is a lot of this business works because somebody like a Ron Conway or somebody else in the ecosystem says, hey, I met these folks and, you know, they're kind of, you know, somewhat intro. vouching. Yeah, it's a warm intro, right? So I guess my first and best advice is, you know, be be industrious and like this is a pretty small world. And so you could probably find, you know, a relatively few degrees of freedom to somebody who knows somebody who can at least help you get a fair shake. Right. Uh, and then look, my best advice for when people come in here is, uh, of course, uh, they should read my book. Uh, but <laughs> what I mean more fundamentally is, just understand understand the incentive structure under which VCs operate and make sure you think about the pitch and obviously whether that comports with what you're trying to accomplish, right? So like, you know, 
do, are you trying to build a big freestanding business? Are you willing to, you know, walk through walls and do what it takes to grow this thing? Are you, do you have the characteristics and the qualities to recruit employees and customers and all those things? And again, those are not normative statements at all. They're just, okay, there's a certain type of business that is more likely to get funded by venture capitalists than by alternative source of capital. And I think so much of the grief and heartache sometimes comes from just a fundamental mismatch of incentives that, you know, if people, uh, you know, made sure they understood that walking in the door, then I think right. life would be a lot easier for many people. And that is all the time we have. So that is the last interview, kind of the normal service we'll be having for at least the next couple months as we uh, push out the pivot. So the pivot, pivot, pivot. Please do sign up. Keep an eye out for the, the episodes. They will also be populating this feed, but please do sign up for the pivot feed. There'll be lots of good stuff in there. That's it. And as ever, I'm on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can go there and find the link to the pivot and I'll also be continuing to write and I'll be doing a lot of stories related to the stories that we're telling in, in the new series in the in the newspaper. So do keep an eye out for that in the Times, the Sunday Times on thetimes.co.uk. We're going to try to publish stories that kind of coincide with the stories that we're telling that week in the podcast. So lots of really good, exciting, fun, interesting stuff coming. So anyhow, that is it. I hope you have a fabulous weekend. I It's 4th of July here, so we are celebrating. And I hope you have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.